This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. As we just sang a moment ago, it's not just singing to God in a vertical sense, but we're actually singing to one another in a horizontal sense to encourage one another. And one of those days where things are bad, where where it seems like they're just dark days ahead, you will remember these songs, and these songs will encourage you moving forward. And that's where Psalm 16 comes in, because actually Psalm 16, in many ways, I believe, is like a song written by David. So if you read Psalm 16, I think if you look in the bulletin that we have, it doesn't have it here. No, it doesn't have it here. If you look at your Bibles, in Psalm 16, it actually begins, at six, it says, a, a miktan, of David and uh, a miktam is actually a musical note or literary device so many people say that this Psalm 16 this miktam is actually meant to be sung by the people of God or at least recited in a corporate setting like a synagogue so as the people came together and they sang or they recited Psalm 16 it was meant to be recited or sung to one another in order for it to be an encouragement to one another. And what was the encouragement? Well, in verse 1, it begins by saying, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. In verse 2, I say to the Lord, You are my Lord, apart from you I have no good thing. So here it asserts two fundamental truths about the God that we worship. One is that this God is a place of refuge. It's a place which is of security, a place of protection, a place where it's like a shepherd guarding his sheep or a bodyguard guarding his VIP. And this is only found, this safe place, in you, in God. Right? It's like an in the, when, when you're in the realm of God, if you are within God himself, there is where you find protection. And then, it's parallel because in verse 2, it says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. So you can actually see there's a parallel sort of structure going, right? So in God, there is refuge. Outside of God, there is no good thing. So actually what it's really saying that is when you are in God, there is refuge. When you are in God, there is all good things. Can you see how this, it's sort of a poetic thing, right? If you're like an engineer or something, it doesn't work for you. But, but you know, if you look at it, it makes sense, right? You can see it here. There's a, there's a parallel structure going. In God, there is refuge. In God, there are all good things. And this is where it's so important for us to always be preaching to ourselves so that we remember the truths about God. Because I remember reading another uh, pastor, I think it was Spurgeon, he was saying that when he analyzed the problem, I think Spurgeon was a doctor, and he, when he analyzed the spiritual condition of people, he said that sometimes instead of praying, we should be preaching to ourselves. Because when you pray and pray and you cannot get what you pray for, you become very despondent and you distrust God. But when you preach to yourself, you actually then remind yourself of God's goodness in spite of your circumstances. Oh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, sorry. Okay, the unemotional man speaks up. It's Martin Lloyd-Jones, not Spurgeon. That's right, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I think this is very important because here he's asserting two fundamental truths which I think links 
the fundamental problems to which this psalm is speaking to. So why does he pray for refuge? Why does he pray for safety? Why does he pray for protection? Most probably because he is David, King David at this time, under persecution, under pressure, under opposition. So he's praying to God and expressing his trust that in God he will find his refuge. And I think this is very important because there will be times where things happen to us as Christians and we may pray all we want, but we will not find the removal of the opposition, but we can only say to God, please God, protect me and keep me safe during this time. So I remember there was a, a, a young man who was uh, from Thailand and he signed up for our pres, uh, prep baptism course. And the moment he signed up for his baptism course, his, his parents his, in, in Thailand uh, basically said to him, if you decide to get baptized, we will cut you off from the family and you, you know, you're not welcome in the family anymore and you're not going to have any inheritance from us. And this uh, young man, he prayed to God that God would remove this threat, but obviously God didn't. And he didn't decide to go through his baptism and today he's not a Christian. So the answer for this young man was not to keep praying for the removal of the opposition, but to, to come back to the truth about God and say, look, God, you, in you is refuge, in you is safety, in you is protection, and I will trust in you to protect me even in the face of this opposition. The second thing that seems to be on David's mind is that God is the God of good things. Right? If you look very closely at what it says there at verse 2, apart from God, I have no good thing. Now, I believe that this is something which is common to us as Christians. Because there will be times where we will come across situations where we, we wonder whether God really intends good for us. I don't know whether that's ever happened to you where you question whether God has good intentions for you. I remember when I was in theological college, there was a, a girl, a single woman, Australian lady, she was Caucasian. And she told me, we were, we were in some chaplaincy group together, that she was quite angry with God at one stage because she met a man who was a very nice man, a very uh, eligible person who was single, who was very interested in her, but he wasn't a Christian, so he didn't go out uh, with her, and, and she chose not to go out with him. And she went to theological college in the end, but during that time, she questioned whether God was really good. Right? If God was good, then why could she not marry this man? If God was good, why was she still single? And I think that that's why, as we come to Psalm 16, we have to keep telling ourselves that no, God is good. And outside of God's will, outside of God, there aren't good things, but within God, within God's will, we will find good things. Now, as we keep going, in verse 3 and 4, David then, uh, as we sing this song, tells us what it means to be in God, what does it mean to say to God, you are my God? What does it look like in reality? How, how do we put uh, uh, real feet on it? How does it look like when it runs? So in verse 3, it says, I say of the holy people who are in the land, uh, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more 
I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on their on my lips. Now, in verse 3, he says that the people who call God my God, the people who are in God, they are the ones who identify. It's, it's basically a, an idea of identify with God's people. They are His delight. They are her delights. Now, it's not as if saying, oh, you know, I'm a Christian because I've got lots of Christian friends. Uh, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that I identify with God's people with their values and with the things that are important for them. It reminds me a bit of Psalm chapter 1 when Andrew was preaching on it where, again, there was a lot of poetic imagery. So in Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the mockers. So I was thinking a bit like, um, you know, when you see the uh, white supremacist uh, demonstrations in Charlottesville in America, right? So, you know, you see the people marching together, you see the people standing together with their tiki trotters, right? And then you see the people sitting together. And, and in a sense, if you are with them, marching together with them, standing together with them and sitting with them, then you're saying that I identify with the values and the cause for which they stand for. Well, that's what this passage is saying. David and the people who sing the Psalm 16 are saying that they don't identify with those who reject God, but instead their delight is for God's holy people. And that is where they see their identification. That is where they are. Now, the opposite then of these people in verse 4 are those who pour out libations of blood or take up their names on their lips. Now, to pour out libations of blood is like worshipping God. And if you, in your lips, speak to God and say, you are my Lord, then it is inconceivable that you will then use your same lips to speak the name of another God. And what David goes on to say is that not only is it something that you choose not to do, I choose not to stand with people who worship other gods or their values or to worship God in my own lips. But in verse 4, he says that if you run after other gods, you actually suffer more and more. You suffer more and more. So, this is actually a unreasonable, foolish thing to do. If, if, if you choose to follow other gods, it's actually foolish because you end up suffering more and more. Hey, but the thing is, is that really true? You know, I mean, I have, uh, I know of this guy who is definitely very ungodly, runs after, all, I mean, I don't know what gods he runs after, but he's very vain and arrogant. And uh, he also drives a Lamborghini. Now, then can you really say that this person is experiencing more and more sorrow. I, I don't know. I won't really say so. Right? I'm sure in our own experience, we know of many people who chase after, after gods and uh, are not very nice people or whatever, and they don't seem to be very sorrowful. In fact, they seem happier and happier, right? Happiness upon happiness for them. So what does it actually mean, Psalm 16? Is, 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 is Psalm 16 just, you know, giving us meaningless, empty words of encouragement? I think that when David 
writes this psalm, and when we sing it together with God's people in Israel, it's actually not just looking at the immediate sufferings or the immediate happiness of people, but it's actually looking at the trajectory of where the different sorts of people will end up. So for God's people, they will find security, refuge, protection, goodness. But for those who run after other gods, they will have sorrow upon sorrow. And I think this actually looks back to Genesis chapter 3, where if you look in Genesis chapter 3, in, up here, I've got it in the slide, right? Oh, okay, I don't have it. Okay, you have to look it up in your own Bibles. Alright, so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, it says, To the woman I greatly increase your pains in childbearing. Okay, and then it goes on to talk to Adam about curses of the ground that you work on and all these curses. And many scholars which I agree upon say that actually David is building upon that idea. Sorrow upon sorrow is sort of bringing people back to Genesis chapter 16 and helping them to remember where God says that, you know, curse upon curse for you because of your rejection of God's will. So, when we see this verse, what we're actually meant to say is, okay, for ourselves, God is refuge, God is all good things. It is foolish to run after other gods because you will receive sorrow upon sorrow. You may not receive sorrow upon sorrow today, but the trajectory of your life will result from sorrow upon sorrow, curse upon curse, pain upon curse, because that is the eternal problem of mankind from Adam and Eve onwards. And you will only find refuge, you will only find protection and safety within the realm of God. Now the passage then goes on in verse 5 to 8, where it says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With Him my, at my right hand I will not be shaken. All right. So, as we look at this passage, the question that we will have to ask ourselves is, and I think this is one of the problems when we read Psalms, right? Because sometimes when you read Psalms, you, you ask yourself the question, can we believe this? Is this believable? And I think it's a fair question to ask as Christians, right? Because, you know, Christians always are being accused of being like, you know, leave your, leave your brain at the door when you came in, right? You know, we're just believing in things that are really unbelievable. But, but here David deals with reality and he says, how can we believe that God is our refuge and God only has good things for us? And he answers the Israelites, not for us. Okay, this is not prosperity gospel. We'll get to that in a second. He says, look at the, at the ground on your feet. Because, he says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. My boundary lines have fallen for me in delightful places or in pleasant places. So, what he's saying is that God has given Israel, God's people, the land. The land was a culmination of promises that God made to various people over generations and God delivered them to a, a land through miracles 
and great power. Okay, so you look at the land, right? So, again, this is very specific to the context of David and to Israel. Okay, now, we can't sort of say it in the same way because Singapore is not the same as Israel, right? Singapore is miles away from Israel in a different time. So the land, the lot, the boundary lines that God had given the tribes of Israel didn't come about by chance, but was an affirmation of the power of God and the faithfulness of His promises. Because God had said to Abraham, He said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Okay, then the next generation to his son Isaac, he said, in verse 2 of chapter 26, the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land I, where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give you all these lands and confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. And then to Isaac's son Jacob, it said, There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and the descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And then, when they were in Egypt, God, through a series of ten miracles, you can sort of figure out the miracles in this picture, right? And he brought them through the Red Sea, and then he brought them all the way from Egypt up to the Promised Land, and then in the Promised Land, they defeated countries stronger and uh, bigger than they were which inhabited the land. So in chapter 33 of Exodus, the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and your people and the people you brought up out of Egypt and go to the land I promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hevites and Jebusites, all the sites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. So not only did God do all these great things, but he brought them to a land which was a good land. And that's why when you come back to Psalm chapter 16, it says, The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. So the promises that, that Israel have inherited have given them confidence that God is a good God and that God is a God of refuge and safety. But if the land is the first thing that gives them confidence, the second thing is that God is not a quiet God. God is not a distant God because it says there in verse 7, I praise the Lord who counsels me even at night my heart instructs me. So God, you see, is not like the idols. He's not far away. But God speaks. He speaks through His Word. So I remember a friend of mine, and uh, you know, became, before he became Christian, he read the Bible, and he, he realized that the Bible was different from myth, from other books, because he said, hey, look, how come in the Bible there are maps, and the maps relate to places, and the places relate to people? And these people were authenticated by God through mighty works and by the fulfillment of what they said. So God, when He speaks, He is actually 
not far where he is speaking through real people, through real time, in real events. And therefore David is able to say, I have confidence in this God because God gave us the land, God speaks to us today. So in verse 8, he says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord with him at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Because God is such a powerful God, God is a promise-keeping God, He says, I will always have God in front of me. Now, I remember um, reading about this person who has a problem with pornography. And he was saying that when he sins against God, it's not as if he wants to disobey God, but it feels as if God is very far away from him. Like God is very distant. He forgets God when he sins and he, and he views these images on the internet. But here David says, because God is a God who fulfills and keeps his promises, gives them the lamb, speaks to them. David says, and as we sing it together, we endeavor to keep God always in front of us. Right? It's not as if God has disappeared. It's not as if God is hiding in the corner. It's not as if we want to put God in the shade. We always keep God in front of us so that we will always remember Him and always be faithful to Him. And if we do that, God is our right hand, we will not be shaken. Now, I'm not sure what shaken or move actually means. Right? It can actually mean two things. Right? Uh, we will not be shaken or moved maybe in a psychological or emotional sense. You know, it's like in a sense where my faith is unwavering because I know the God in which I worship. Or it could be a reality thing. Because God is with me, God will protect me and I'll never be shaken. It's a bit like when Jesus says, you know, your house is built on solid rock. It's like, you know, it doesn't matter what storms of life come, right? God will keep you and keep you safe. But, you know, whether it's one or the other, they're quite similar, but you're not sure what exactly it's going to, you know, whether it's a psychological way or emotional way or whether it's a real way which God keeps you. But David doesn't end there. He ends at the highest crescendo. Therefore, right? So the therefore means everything that we've sung, everything that we've read from verse 1 to 8. Therefore, my heart is glad. Oh, that's the emotional word. My tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Now here is the highest of the highest promises. Because when David looks back in the past, he sees the land, he sees God's word, he understands the character of God as good and a refuge, but he can look forward to the future and he says, there is one mighty promise left. And that promise is eternal life. But it is not just eternal life that the grave will not hold you and your body will not decay. It is a good eternal life. One where you are with God in a glorious future with eternal pleasures. Now how do you want to live forever? Okay. I was reading a science fiction book. I like reading science fiction. Okay, imagine you can hibernate into the future. Okay, you can live Forever. Maybe you hibernate and then you can cure your problems. Right? 
But what happens if the future is a bleak future? You know, the future is a future where the sun is uh, you know, dying and the earth is very cold and all the resources on earth have been used up and there's global warming and uh, everything. Would you want to live forever? Maybe not, right? Maybe this is the best it's ever going to be. 2017. Then, you, you know, then maybe living forever doesn't seem so attractive anymore. But this passage here says that David's faith, and as we sing this psalm, our faith is in a God who not only raises up to eternal life, but in verse 11, it is a, a life of joy in God's presence with eternal pleasures. Now, how that will be reflected, who knows, right? But it is a promise of God based on what God has done in the past. Because He has kept His word of the nature of God's promises, of His goodness, we can look forward to eternal life with joy and pleasure. Now, again, somebody might sort of say, you know, this isn't really uh, true, right? Because David died. And the Israelites died. They sang this psalm and they were decaying. They are decayed now. Their bodies were committed to the grave. So maybe they sang this song foolishly. You know, there's no point singing this song because they all died. Well, in Acts chapter 2, uh, the Apostle Peter quotes from Psalm 16. And he preaches to the Jews in one of the earliest sermons that are recorded for us. Oh, is it up here? Sorry, it's up here, I think. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay, so the purple stuff is Psalm 16. Okay. Uh, the black text is the X. And then as you'll see later, I highlighted something else which uh, is a fulfillment of the X, as uh, a Psalm 16 passage. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. That sounds familiar, right? Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David, okay, David wrote Psalm 16, died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God promised him on oath that he would, one, he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. So we as Christians actually have an advantage over David and the Jews who sang this psalm, because we see the fulfillment of what God promised through David when they sang Psalm 16 that they were speaking first and foremost of Jesus Christ, the Holy One, who would not be abandoned to the grave, but on the third day, raised to life. And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see the fulfillment of the end of Psalm 16 for the rest of us. Because we too, through Jesus, will be raised to eternal life with joy and eternal pleasure. The grave will not hold us. Our bodies will not decay. 
And we will be raised with Jesus Christ when he comes again. Now, as we look at this passage, it teaches us something about faith, the nature of faith in the Bible. Because the world thinks that faith, having faith, is actually the opposite of logic, reasonableness, and truth, and reality. So I have faith in something which is fundamentally unbelievable and unreasonable and illogical to believe in. But here in Psalm 16, David and the Israelites, as they sing this song, are actually saying we must have faith, not because it's illogical, unreasonable, or fanciful, but we must have faith because we have seen God do these things, and therefore God must be like this, and therefore God is going to do this. And even more as Christians, we have seen it happen because Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Now, one of the problems is that the world is unable to see it because it, has, it views the world through the lens or the perspective of rejecting anything that's supernatural, you know, anything that's unscientific. But if we see Psalm 16 and we see the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see the promises fulfilled in, in the, the God's people in the land and his word, then we must actually say that faith in God is logical and something that we must actually embrace and keep reminding ourselves and encouraging ourselves over and over again. You know, you'd be a terrible scientist, right, if you see the world in a particular way and therefore try to find evidence to just back up your way of viewing things. Or you'd be a really bad judge if you really have the verdict in mind, so you want to pick out all the pieces of evidences to fit that verdict. But what David is doing here is he's actually giving you all the evidences and saying, look, keep reminding yourself of this, keep singing this song, so that when you doubt, when you have trials, when you face dark days, you will be able to come back to the words of this song and strengthen your faith. You know, one of the things that I often notice is when people are very down and depressed, um, the part of the Bible that they always go back to seems to be the Psalms. right? Because the Psalms actually, in so many ways, are like uh, the, the, the crying out of David or the worship or the praise of David. And, and as he sings these words, we sing it together with him. So as we look at Psalm chapter 16, uh, we're not meant to like sing it to God, but we're meant to sing it back to ourselves. Right? We're meant to actually remind ourselves over and over of these truths so that our faith will be strong. You know, I was thinking to myself, you know, it's very strange, right, to a non-Christian why we keep coming to church every Sunday, to keep reminding ourselves about the same thing. I mean, we only celebrate National Day once a year, right? I mean, we only need to know these truths once a year, right? What's so important? So why do we come to church and we keep reminding ourselves week after week about Jesus Christ dying on the cross or the nature of God? The reason it's important is because the nature of God, what He has done, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, is so much more important for us in eternity then, oh, maybe I shouldn't say this, I'll get deported, then the National Day of Singapore, right? Because these things have eternal significances, these things have eternal implications. And that's why when we come and look at Psalm chapter 16, it should be such an encouragement for us that God is a good God. He is a God that you go to for refuge. He is a God who only has good things for us. And when we look back 
at this life from eternity, one day when we're all in heaven together, we will be able to see how, yes, God is a God of refuge. And God is a God of only good things. And that it's wise to keep trusting in Him for all these things. Okay, so let's uh, go to God in prayer, and then you can ask questions after that. Okay, dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that we will be able to sing this song with full conviction that in you we have refuge. And in you we have every good thing. And we know this to be true because you gave the land to your people in Israel. You kept your promises, you spoke your word through the prophets, and even more for us, you raised Jesus Christ from the dead as the first fruits for our resurrection. That through the resurrection of Jesus, we know all the more the authenticity of your uh, kingship, your lordship over us, your divinity, and it drives us stronger in our faith uh, to run to you and not to let go of you in spite of the difficulties of this life. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.